All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Friday morning show for you today, and we start with mandatory vaccinations in the long-term care facilities in B.C. The announcement made yesterday by Dr. Bonnie Henry, there are eight outbreaks of the virus in long-term care facilities. The Delta variant of the virus, a key concern here. Officials taking action now. All long-term care staff required to be vaccinated. Volunteers and personal care workers at long-term care facilities also required to be fully vaccinated. Here is Dr. Bonnie Henry making the announcement yesterday. We are announcing mandatory vaccination as a condition of employment for all workers in seniors in long-term care and seniors assisted living. This will apply to all licensed facilities, whether they are private, health authority owned and operated, or contracted facilities. The requirement will be made through a provincial health officer order that will have a number of things in place. Bonnie Henry speaking yesterday, announcing that mandatory vaccination rule for long-term care. Let's check in with Terry Lake now, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. And I'm pleased to welcome him back. Terry, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Terry, your reaction to the announcement yesterday? Well, we're overjoyed. Uh, Since we have the vaccine available, we've been asking for a mandatory vaccination policy for the most vulnerable settings, and that is long-term care and assisted living. So we uh, very much welcome the news, uh, and I think we'll see other provinces follow suit. Yeah, we saw earlier uh, the Dr. Bonnie Henry bring in a system where you would have mandatory vaccines, but if you did not get the vaccine, you would be subject to testing and PPE requirements, masking. This obviously goes much further than that. Why do you think they took this step right now? Well, I think when you look at the number of outbreaks, uh, we went from over 40 down to zero with the vaccination program, but with the rise of the Delta variant and the increased prevalence in community, we're back to eight outbreaks. And while the mortality hasn't been the same as in the first and second waves, um, you know, people are getting sick and importantly, uh, their quality of life is suffering because you have to shut the, the home down again. So families, visitors, social activities, are, you know, all go away. And um, uh, that is really tragic when you think about the quality of life uh, aspect of living in care. How many, what percentage of long-term care workers were not vaccinated? Tough to know because, uh, you know, the system to require uh, your declaration of your vaccine status had not been developed yet. So we really had no idea how many workers were vaccinated unless that information was was voluntarily uh, supplied. So we do know that in some instances uh, they were as low as 50 or 60 percent, for instance, in Campbell River wow. that had an outbreak last week. Um, vaccination rates among staff were only 60%. So uh, clearly uh, not at the point where we're making it a safe environment for our seniors in care. What's been the reaction of workers in the long-term care sector to this announcement? I think most uh, are welcoming it, uh, you know, particularly those that already got uh, the vaccine because now it means everyone will be, um, you know, have the same obligation and and, uh, will be kept safe. I know some healthcare unions have traditionally opposed mandatory vaccines, uh, so uh, I did see some positive um, reactions yesterday from the unions. And the government and operators will have to work closely with with unions as well as uh, staff. When we have some non-unionized staff, to make sure that uh, individuals understand the 
the efficacy of the vaccine, the safety of the vaccine. We need to answer all the questions that they have uh, so that uh, they can take the vaccine and and, uh, that we don't lose anybody because we just can't afford to lose anybody in this sector. There is a phase-in period here, so staff will need to be fully vaccinated by October 12th. If there are cases where there are some staff members who still don't want to get the vaccine, what happens to them? I guess they are, they're let go, I presume. Uh, that's my understanding, and uh, you know that's probably going to create some labor relations issues, and we're hopeful that the government and, and unions will work uh, at the sort of provincial or regional tables uh, to deal with these, because if you're an individual operator and you're having to deal with those kinds of labor relations issues, it can take a lot of time and resources, and we need to be dedicating all of those resources to looking after our elders. Speaking to Terry Lake, he's the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, mandatory vaccines now in long-term care. Do you anticipate any kind of pushback on this or legal challenge to it? Uh, You know, I... If you had asked me that about three months ago, I might have said yes, but I think we're seeing dominoes fall uh, across the country. We've seen University of Ottawa and Carleton University put in mandatory vaccination for return to campus. Um, I believe the federal government announced mandatory vaccines for all federally regulated industries. So, you know, when, when you have this tidal wave of, of people adopting similar policies, I think there's less risk of uh, having a legal challenge and in the past uh, the flu vaccine the mandated flu vaccine that was in place when i was minister for instance withstood uh, withstood those kinds of challenges so i suspect that while there may be challenges that this will be upheld you mentioned that the bc care providers had been calling for this for some time and a lot of the reaction that i saw yesterday to this announcement was along the lines of what took so long why wasn't it done earlier do you have any thoughts on that i mean there had been some resistance to this idea in the past why did it take this long to do it well that's a good question i think that's that's a question for uh, dr henry and uh, and minister dix um but you know to her credit uh, dr henry uh changed her position uh, it was only about five weeks ago where the the testing uh, if you weren't vaccinated uh, policy was announced um so she pivoted uh, quickly, and I think in the face of evidence, that's that's what you do. Uh, it was clear that people were still being put at risk, that the vaccination rates among staff were not high enough, and so this was uh, a logical step. So, you know, we have to give credit to Dr. Henry for making that decision. You know, we, we asked for bold uh, decisions, and, and this is a bold decision. Yeah, this made headlines across Canada yesterday, and you mentioned that there's been a reaction across the country. I saw a lot of opinions yesterday in other provinces saying, please do the same thing here. Do you anticipate that this is the start of a a wave uh, across the province, uh, across the country of other provinces, perhaps bringing in the same rule? I do. I'm uh, currently uh, just muting myself from a a Zoom call with the Canadian Association of Long-Term Care. So uh, all you know, operators from across the country are on this call, and, and everyone is in favor of this type of uh, mandatory vaccination policy. So uh, I think you'll see that, that pressure uh, increase in other provinces. Some provinces uh, earlier had put in a, a vaccine or education or a vaccine or testing, uh, but no one uh, to date at least has gone as far as, uh, as British Columbia, but I, I think that will change very quickly. Last question for you, Terry. This applies to all long-term care staff, volunteers in long-term care home, personal care workers, 
all be required to get fully vaccinated. What about residents of long-term care? If you're a resident, do you have to get vaccinated? Uh, no, you don't. Um, and, you know, that's that's something that uh, residents and, and often families have to make a, a decision around. Um, these folks are, you know, in the last uh, phase of their life and dealing with complex chronic illnesses. So sometimes that uh, means that they can't take a vaccine. Uh, but uh, we do know that among residents, uh, the vaccine uptake has been about 95%. So that's not where we've seen resistance at all. It's uh, It's been in the staff. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks, Michael. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about mandatory vaccines in the workplace now and uh, things changing rapidly here in British Columbia. Yesterday, Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer, announcing mandatory vaccines in long-term care facilities. She also talked about the possibility of private sector businesses bringing in similar rules. Should you be required to show proof of vaccination to get into a concert or a sporting event? Let's check in with Lior Zamfiro now. He's an employment lawyer at Zamfiro in Tumarka. And hey, Lior. Hi, Michael. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Big announcement here yesterday, Lior, as you know, from the provincial health officer, mandatory vaccination for long-term care staff. What do you think of that? I mean, does this seem to be a trend across the country now that we'll see similar rules? And do you think it's actually legal? Can employers do that, require you to be vaccinated as a condition of employment? I think now with uh, Ms. Bonnie Henry issuing this this order, I think the dam will be broken. I think uh, many uh, provincial governments across the country were waiting to see who's going to take that first step to try and impose mandatory vaccines. Obviously, that's a very politically charged issue. I do think that is a sign of, of things to come. I think we will see uh, both other uh, other provinces follow suit as well as other industries within BC uh, mandated to to be vaccinated. Obviously, with the the industry, you know, nursing uh, nursing homes, we we're dealing with vulnerable people, so it would make sense that that will be the first place where vaccines get mandated. And the reason why this is so important, because in the absence of a government requirement. It is still generally not acceptable for employers to unilaterally mandate vaccines. They need that, that authorization, the, the protection, if you will, from the government to issue that order. So now employers in that nursing home sector certainly can go ahead and do that. But for private companies, companies that are not covered by this particular order, it is still not, uh, not appropriate to uh, require vaccines. Although I do know for a fact, Michael, that a lot of employers are saying, we don't care appropriate or not, we're doing it anyway. But that potentially does uh, create legal liability. Okay, what is the case law on this? Has something like this ever been challenged in court in Canada to this point? So this is a fairly new issue. I mean, we've had some some, uh, court decisions in the union context as relates to uh, flu vaccines in the past, but this is a brand new uh, area. This is a, a pandemic like we haven't had, and this is the type of vaccine we have not had before. But the legal principles essentially remain the same. It would be potentially a human rights violation to mandate a vaccine. It could be a breach of privacy rights to have people tell you about their personal medical information. So because of that, I still urge caution at this point for employers to mandate vaccines until and unless government says it's okay to do so. Okay, why is it uh, like a government declaration or a public health order like that? Why would that make a difference like if this ends up let's say in front of a in front of a judge and maybe a constitutional challenge 
do you think so you think a judge would look at a public health order and make it more likely that it would be declared legal and okay well you can certainly still challenge a government order as you said through a constitutional challenge but you won't be able to pursue your employer if your employer can say listen my hands are tied i have to do what i'm told there would be no recourse there so for employers that means at that point they can do that without risking legal liability for those interesting and challenging the government, they could. I think that would be very difficult where the government is empowered to make decisions, quote unquote, for the greater public good. That said, that's an option. But employers will be protected themselves from facing any legal action or complaints if the government says you have to do it. Okay, so you expect this to catch on in the rest of the country now, right? I mean, this made headlines across Canada yesterday. Other provinces, no doubt, looking very closely at what BC is doing here. Do you expect other, you expect other provinces now to bring in similar rules? Not, not only do I expect that to happen, I expect it to happen very, very quickly, very soon. Uh, yeah. I think within days, we will slowly but surely see other provinces following suit. Okay, speaking to Lior Zamfiru, he's an employment lawyer, well-known to CKNW listeners, Zamfiru and, and Tumarkin. You touched briefly, Lior, on, on the other sort of big issue that this opens up, and that's whether private sector employers might start to bring in similar requirements for those employees. Now, let me play this here for you. Dr. Bonnie Henry weighing in on this yesterday, uh, and you'll hear her talk here about private businesses and mandatory vaccines in the workplace. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry, and then I'll get your thoughts. These are the things that businesses need to make decisions based on the risk of their business and the risk to their business. As we just talked about in some areas, um, if you have people who are coming in who are non-immunized and who uh, spread uh, cause an outbreak in that business, that can be very uh, severely impact the ability of the business to function. And uh, we've seen that, as I mentioned, in places like some of the restaurants, etc., in, in the central Okanagan. So these are business decisions that they need to make in conjunction with their own, uh, their own label, uh, labor lawyer advisors. Um, but it, I do think it is a perfectly valid thing. Okay, a perfectly valid thing. That's what she called it yesterday, Lior. She mentioned specifically about restaurants that have had outbreaks of COVID-19. She also mentioned that employers should consult with their labor lawyer advisors. <laughs> Man, a lot to unpack there. What do you think about her comments? Well, it may be uh, a prudent thing to do from a medical standpoint, but not really from a legal standpoint. In fact, I, I do consider these comments to be somewhat irresponsible because she, in a way she's telling businesses that if you decide that that's okay, you should go ahead and do it. Well, no, unless the government allows them to do that or, or protects them from liability, protects employers from liabilities, legally they still can't. And, and here's why. The BC government has decided the workplaces and public spaces are safe as long as certain measures are taking place. That's the government deciding that, whether it's masking or social distances, distancing, restaurants are safe, other workplaces are safe. So if the government is saying that these places are safe, i.e. vaccines are not required, then an employer can't decide on their own, well, we still think it's unsafe because the government has said otherwise. So until and unless the government says restaurants are not safe unless people are vaccinated, the restaurant owner can't make that decision on their own. And if they do, they could face liability there. So I, I would 
encourage and warn all employers to be very, very careful when considering imposing mandatory vaccines. Okay, and we're getting into some deeper waters here. Yeah, I agree with you. I thought those were some surprising comments from from, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. I think she went a lot farther than people anticipated she would yesterday in this announcement and some of the things that she had to say. Hey, Lior, while I have you here, let me ask you about another story in the news right now, and I find this one fascinating. There are so many people uh, during this pandemic who have transitioned to working at home, and a lot of people seem to love it. Uh, now we have some employers saying, hey, it's time to come back to the office. No more working at home. You got to get back to the to the main workplace here in the office. Look at what Google has done when they have cut the pay for some employees who continue to work at home. Lior, I'll get you to listen to this report here from Reuters News, and then I'll get your thought here. Your thoughts here on Google cutting the play, pay for, for work from home employees. Have a listen. According to a company pay calculator seen by Reuters, Google's remote employees, especially those who once commuted from long distances, could experience pay cuts without changing their address. For example, an employee who works from home full-time in Stamford, Connecticut, an hour away from Google's office in New York City, would be paid 15% less if the employee worked at home. By contrast, a colleague from the same office living in New York City would see no pay cut even if the employee, too, worked from home. Screenshots of Google's internal salary calculator showed 5% and 10% differences in the Seattle, Boston, and San Francisco areas. A Google spokesman did not specifically address the issue in Stanford, but said employees who work from home in the same city where their office is based won't get their pay cut. Google said pay will differ from city to city, state to state. Similar experiments are happening across Silicon Valley. Facebook and Twitter have cut pay for remote employees who move to less expensive areas. By contrast, smaller companies like Reddit and Zillow now pay employees the same no matter where they are based, citing advantages in hiring and retention. Lior, I find this fascinating that you've got Google, one of the biggest employers out there, saying if you work from home, you might get a pay cut here. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, I find it somewhat curious that employees that are using less employer resources, less electricity, less office space, will get paid less. But that aside, from a legal standpoint, here's how this works. If it's the employer saying, you must work remotely, we're not going to have you work in the office anymore, you must do so remotely, it would be inappropriate for the employer to pay less. It would be inappropriate to take a pay cut. On the other hand, if the employer is saying, we're going to give you an option, you can come back to work, work in the office, usual pay, no problem. Or if you want to work remotely, we'll allow you to do that, but that's going to come with a pay cut. That would be fine if the employee has the option to work in the office. So imposing a pay cut, no. Providing that as an option for the employee to consider is acceptable. Lior, it's a fascinating area and an evolving one of uh, labor law. I'm sure it's keeping you busy. Hey, uh, what's your website there if people want to get in touch with you? Very simple. It's employmentlawyer.ca. Lior, thanks for coming on today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about Canada's relations with China now, especially with the plight of the two Michaels. This week we saw Canadian businessman Michael Kovrig sentenced to 11 years Michael Spavor pardon me Michael Spavor was sentenced to 11 years in jail on espionage charges Michael Kovrig the other Michael of the two Michaels 
also jailed on espionage charges. He's expected to be sentenced very soon. Earlier, we saw the death sentence upheld for another Canadian, Robert Schellenberg, on drug trafficking charges. Canada uh, issuing official complaints about uh, Canada's China's treatment of these Canadians. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this week uh, calling this unacceptable, unclear precisely what Canada will do in response, though. As this is happening, calls growing for Canada and other countries as well to boycott the 2022 Winter Olympic Games scheduled for next year in Beijing, China. Have a listen to this now. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, he was a guest on the show here yesterday and i asked him about this call for to boycott the beijing olympics and here's what he had to say and i do think it's wrong to reward a country with the olympics when they have the worst human rights record uh in the in the world they're going in the wrong direction and the olympics as we just saw in tokyo should be a celebration of the world coming together not rewarding hostage diplomacy Okay, Conservative Leader Aaron O'Toole speaking to me on the show yesterday. Other organizations and countries around the world also calling for a boycott of the Beijing Olympics next year. There's a coalition of 180 human rights groups calling for a boycott. Some prominent politicians south of the border in the United States, including Nancy Pelosi, have also talked about some version of a boycott of the China Olympics next year is this the right thing to do would it actually work and provoke any changes on the part of china let's discuss now with my guest rob livingstone rob is a producer and sports business journalist with gamesbids.com he's a specialist in covering the olympic games and i'm very pleased to welcome him hey rob thanks a lot for coming on today um my pleasure good morning mike hey rob what do you think about these calls for a boycott of the beijing olympics um, in, in the past, we've seen that boycotts typically don't work. They don't change foreign policy. Uh, we saw, you know, the boycott of Moscow in 1980. And around that time, there were other boycotts by the East, by the West. Didn't really change much. Um, you know, if, if I thought there might be an impact in the way, uh, um, you know, in, in having an impact on, on what China did, uh, I could back this. But you know, we haven't seen that happen in the past. And, and why are we, you know, allowing Olympians to be on the front lines of foreign policy decisions? Have we run out of other ideas? Yeah, I mean, when you take a look at, at past boycotts, I take your point about whether they can be effective uh, or not. I mean, one of the most famous, of course, was the uh, the boycott of the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games to protest the, the then Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan, and we saw the United States and Canada and their, their allies boycott those games famously. And uh, the Soviet Union, I think, hung, hang around in the state in Afghanistan for like another nine years after that. So, I mean, some people have been saying that 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 didn't work. Is that your is? I mean, have there been any other boycotts that have been more effective, or have they all basically failed? Um, I, I have. I mean, we we don't know how history might have been different had things gone otherwise but i haven't seen any example where you know there's been a major change in 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 how a country has uh you know done what they've been doing um because of a boycott usually they just absorb the the impact and the only people who suffer are the athletes who many have trained their whole lives and this is their only single opportunity you know i think for for beijing it's an opportunity to get five thousand journalists 
in China, maybe to perhaps uncover what's going on. You know, you have 10,000 athletes as well who now have a little more leeway with social media and other platforms to, to voice their opinions as well when they're on the ground. Um, so you can look at this both ways. Um, it's really tough to say that a boycott would be more effective than just going to the games and, and seeing what's going on. Okay, we expect a, a federal election in Canada to be triggered here on Sunday. Uh, we expect Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to make a visit to the Governor General and ask for her to dissolve Parliament and set the ball rolling for an election to be held in Canada uh, next month. We've got Aaron O'Toole, as you just heard, the Conservative leader voicing support for a boycott. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has also called for uh, the Beijing games to be moved or boycotted. So this could be an election issue here in the days ahead. In your coverage of, of the Olympic Games, like it's really the athletes who are stuck in the middle, right? Like what would you say about the athletes who have trained all their lives for maybe, in some cases, one shot at an Olympic medal, and then they end up being kind of the pawns in this game? Yeah, I mean, it's really hurting. I mean, obviously it hurts them, and, and, and you have to weigh that against the, you know, the human rights issues that, that are happening in China. You know, it, had I believed that this would have an impact and could change things in China, you know, maybe it's a loss we're willing to take as far as sacrificing what, um, the, the Olympians and, and their dreams and goals. But that's not the case. And, and like I said, it's an opportunity for the Olympians, and, and a lot of them have their own opinions on this, and they have a voice and a platform to go in there and tell their story um, and what their thoughts are. So they're stuck in the middle, but maybe maybe there's that opportunity to send them and, and hear more about this. Okay, you've made the point that the time for a boycott maybe would have been more relevant discussion to have earlier, right? Like when we're so close to the Olympic Games, how does that make it more difficult? Like if, if a boycott had been had been put on the table earlier, do you think it would have been a, a different conversation? I think the t- time, I mean, w- when uh, Beijing bid for these games in 2015, it was a drawn-out, two-year, very public process. Um, the same issues uh, that, that we're seeing in China today were, were occurring then. And there was a great opportunity for world leaders to say, hey, to, to the IOC to say, you know, we don't want, d- don't elect them. We're going to cause problems down the line. We're going to call for boycotts. Don't do this. Before it all started, they could have chosen another city. But nobody said anything. There were small protests. I was on the ground in Beijing covering their bid uh, more than once there. And and there were small protests in, in um, Switzerland when they had the vote. Uh, or in uh, actually it was in uh, Singapore, I believe. No. Uh, anyways, when they had yeah. these meetings, yeah. there were very few protests. And that would have been the time to stop it in its tracks. Now it's six months to go. A boycott yeah. is really not in the best interest of too many too many of the stakeholders. Okay, speaking to Rob Livingstone, he's a sports journalist with GamesBids.com. What about the alternatives to a full boycott? I mean, there are different ways to protest China's behavior here rather than a full boycott of the Olympic Games. You know, some people have talked about a, a what's known as a diplomatic boycott. And this, this would be a case where maybe the athletes would be allowed to attend but that world leaders and, and other like political officials maybe would refuse to attend. And we've seen some members of the U.S. Congress sort of support this approach. Like, instead of punishing the athletes and sticking them in the middle of it, why don't we have the political leaders 
boycott the games instead. I mean, do you think do you see that as maybe an alternative? Yeah, that's certainly a better solution. I mean, the the um, to have the national leaders um, and heads of state appear at the opening ceremonies and sometimes the closing ceremonies. Um, you know, they're highlighted in that ceremony, and and that would be a big deal to see. You know, a, a head of state. Um, shown on camera as their athletes arrive and you know that's the kind of exposure that that china would be looking for so definitely that's a better solution and then just have the athletes compete and show what they're what uh show what they can do um that's definitely a better way to move forward how about relocating the games i mean we've seen some lawmakers in the united states and the uk and here in canada too saying well look why don't we try to make an effort to move the olympic games out of china and stage them somewhere else. I mean, is it too late for that? I mean, has the train left the station on these games now? Yeah, with six months to go, that's virtually impossible. I mean, we saw even just to move Tokyo to postpone it, um, in keeping the same venues and everything in place, that was quite a nightmare. Um, to find accommodations for 10,000 athletes and put that all together in six months, it's virtually impossible, and, and I can't see that as an option at all. What about the athletes themselves and their opportunity to make a political statement at the games? And you touched briefly on this. I mean, we've seen some famous examples of of athletes using the platform of the Olympic Games to make, in some cases, some very powerful statements. I mean, people will remember Tommy Smith and, and the, the Black Power salute on, on the podium at the, the 1968 Olympic Games. Do you think that, that there are some athletes who'd be willing to to speak out and make a statement in, in China while they, they're still allowed to compete? Yeah, I mean, they, they, so the IOC's uh, loosened up a bit on um, how they allow athletes to voice their opinions. Um, they don't allow podium protests, although some still happen and they don't really enforce that. But certainly uh, um, athletes can use the platforms or social media platforms can do interviews outside of their competition and voice their opinions at the site of the games. There's an opportunity there. I mean, uh, I remember, I don't remember, I wasn't there, but of course, uh, uh, Jesse Owens dominated the Berlin 1936 games. I mean, just competing was a big statement there. So um, the athletes do have a voice and they can make a big difference here. Okay, there's there's also been some pressure on Olympic Games corporate sponsors to take a stand here. I mean, we all know the Olympics are, are big money, and you've got major, huge sponsors of the Olympic Games like Coca-Cola, and there are activists that are actively trying to pressure some of these corporate sponsors withdraw their support for the Olympic Games. I don't think there's any indication that any of these sponsors are about to do that, though, with so much money on the line but is that another potential avenue yeah possibly i mean you've got two two levels of sponsorship you have domestic sponsors within china that probably won't withdraw support i mean that wouldn't be in their best interest and you have the the uh the top sponsors they call them that are overall olympic movement sponsors uh you know uh, people's voices do count and we've seen um uh, corporate corp um, corporate withdrawals we saw toyota they pulled a lot of their sponsorship in Japan because it looked bad when a lot of the Japanese people didn't want the Olympics in Tokyo. I mean, that just happened. So definitely, um, you know, there's opportunity for people to express their opinion that way. Rob, thanks for your thoughts today. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure.
All right, welcome back. And here we go now with the great wealth tax debate in Canada. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is set to trigger a federal election on Sunday. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh already out of the gates with a major election promise, a wealth tax in Canada. Now, the federal NDP leader has a big spending agenda here. How would he pay for it all? Make the rich pay. Increase income taxes on the highest wage earners. A corporate tax on Canada's biggest and richest corporations. And a wealth tax on the super rich in Canada. And we've got a great panel on this standing by. First, have a listen to federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh speaking yesterday. We are going to ask the ultra-rich to finally start paying their fair share and invest that into people. Imagine if we could invest that those extra resources into creating good jobs to help us fight the climate crisis. If we could invest in better health care that covered you truly from head to toe. If we could invest in fighting for justice for Indigenous people, in cleaning water, in making sure that we deliver on the services that people need. That's the choice that we have, and that's the vision that we have for Canada. Okay, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh speaking yesterday, making the case for a wealth tax on the super rich in Canada. All right, let's discuss with my guests here. We got both sides before you. Franco Terrazano on the line, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me today. You bet. Thanks for doing it. Also on the line is Joe Roberts. Joe is a columnist with CanadianDimension.com. Joe, thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks a lot, Mike. Excited to be here. Hey, Joe, you've written a lot about this. You've made the case for a wealth tax in Canada. What do you think about this idea? Look, I think Jagmeet Singh is just speaking to what the people of Canada want. You know, this is a a policy that is supported by 79% of Canadians, and not just in the NDP base. We're talking across the aisle, even 64% of conservatives support this. So I think the question we have to ask is, not do Canadians want a wealth tax, does this plan go far enough? We know they want it. We've got to get the money rolling in to support some of these important policy positions that the NDP is putting forward. Okay, so his plan for a wealth tax would be to tax the super rich or the ultra rich in Canada, which Jagmeet Singh defines as uh, households with assets exceeding $10 million dollars. Uh, that's a that'd be a pretty small number of households, would it not, Joe? Or how many people? How many households would that be? Ten million bucks? Yeah, it's not that many. You know, we're talking less yeah. than one percent of Canadian taxpayers. This is ninety-eight thousand or so, roughly uh, households yeah. that'd be paying this tax versus you know thirty-eight million Canadians that would benefit from the revenues that are being paid. And these are also people who have done extraordinarily well during this pandemic. Let's remember, you know, just the top billionaires in this country have added eighty-seven billion dollars to their wealth an exorbitant amount of money when at the same time when the majority of Canadians would be insolvent if they faced a crisis of $200. So this plan really brings some sense of equity and sanity back into our tax debate. Okay, Joe likes the plan. Franco Garazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, your thoughts? Well, you know, this is a wealth tax. We're talking about that. It's a really uh, complex and very costly type of tax. And that's the reason why you have so many countries around the world that have tried wealth tax but then abandoned a wealth tax. And, you know, when we're talking about a wealth tax, it's not just the wealthy Canadians that are going to be impacted by it. I mean, it's really going to be everyday Canadians that feel the sting. And even if we lay aside the economic consequences of a wealth tax, um, you know, the question is, why are we doing this? 
you know, I agree that we do have to take the $1 trillion federal government debt tab seriously, but the Trudeau government is spending so much money that even if it had a wealth tax, the Trudeau government would burn through that cash in about a month. So who's going to be left picking up the tab the other 11 months of the year? Well, it's going to be everyday Canadians like me and you if this government doesn't actually rein in its deficit spending. How would, Franco, how would a wealth tax on the wealthiest Canadians impact lower income Canadians, like you were saying? Like, if you bring in a tax on people with, with assets of $10 million, I mean, you're talking about a tiny percentage of Canadians. How would that affect everyone else? Well, the thing is, when you're talking about a wealth tax, you're not talking about income or cash in the bank, right? You're, tax- right. you're talking about taxing assets, right? And where do many people have these types of assets? They have their assets in their businesses. So what are they going to have to do to actually pay that tax? Well, they're going to have to sell assets within their business. Who does that impact? It impacts the workers at that business. And right now you have so many Canadians who are worried about their economic future, so many Canadians who are worried about whether or not they're going to have their job still. The last thing that we want to do right now, especially, is to go after business assets and really put those types of jobs at risk. Okay, Joe Roberts, what do you say to that? I say the arguments don't hold water. I mean, let's look at CEO of Shopify, Tobias Lutke added $8 billion to his personal wealth, 1%, he's not going to feel it. It's a a small share sell-off for him. This will not affect working Canadians in any way. If anything, it will bring equity back into the economy, which is what we need. You know, we're looking at a K-shaped recovery here where the wealthy continue to get wealthier, and those who are working class continue to get much more poor and are struggling. And if we continue down this path, that's what's going to happen. I think, you know, let's talk about just for a second about some of the other cases that uh, Franklin mentioned here. So, you know, look at Norway, which is probably the, the leading example of a wealth tax in the world, has had a wealth tax since the late 1890s. It represents 1.1% of all of their revenue for the entire government. And let's not forget, Norway has the best quality of life in the world, and it's because of policies like this. And so Jagmeet mm. Singh and the NDP is putting forth a policy that is it is modeled after policies that work and that will bring this sanity back to our to our economy and our lives. Franco, what do you say to that? Well, wealth taxes don't work. They're absolute failures, right? They've, they've been tried in France, Austria, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Ireland, India, Netherlands, Sweden. Those countries all tried a wealth tax. They all abandoned it. Why? Because it has a huge impact on the economy. Let's look at France. They had a wealth tax in. Well, their higher taxes chased away thousands of French residents and billions of dollars worth of assets, right? So the last thing that we want to be doing is put more damaging types of taxes into our economy. Again, it doesn't just impact wealthy Canadians. It really will have a sting for your everyday Canadians. And one thing that I want to to bring up is that there is a very slippery slope of taxation, right? We've already seen politicians move down that threshold. In 2019, the NDP wanted a threshold of $20 million. Now they're saying the threshold is going to be $10 million. But there's another sneaky, sneaky way that politicians will drag more taxpayers into paying that tax. It happened in France. What did they do? Eventually, they stopped moving the threshold with inflation. So as people's home properties increased, more and more French residents were pushed into that damaging wealth tax. Okay, Joe, what do you say to the argument, and Franco touched on this earlier, that even if you did bring in a wealth tax on the, on the richest Canadians, that it would only raise enough revenue to sustain like just a few days of spending by the government? I mean, you've, you've got a federal government that's spending over a billion bucks a day. If you brought in a wealth tax even on, on the super rich, wouldn't you burn through that revenue just in a in a few days of spending? 
Well, I don't think we have to look at this about how it affects the budget. We have to look at this about how, what kind of society we want to live in. And, you know, this doesn't just necessarily affect the bottom line of dollars and cents. You know, we go back to these questions about other countries where it's failed. Yeah, it's failed because you're going to tax them at 0.2%. Frankly, 1% is not even enough. We need to be looking at a progressive wealth tax, similar to what Bernie Sanders recommended in the United States. Or if we look at, you know, what is recommended by Thomas Piketty, an economist in France, who says we need a 90% wealth tax on wealth over a billion dollars to average out the system and, and to put dollars wow. back into the bottom of our wealth period, pyramid, not to the top. Because what we're seeing is a society that is not sustainable, a society where dollars are continuously pooled at the top and those resources are pulled out of our economy. Look, a billionaire has $8 billion. He's not going out and spending that money to stimulate the economy. He's not necessarily investing in his business. He's piling it away and making money off of interest. All we're asking is that that person puts that money back into our society and okay. invest in a society that helped to make them wealthy. Okay, Franco, a real quick response, and then we'll take a break here and take a couple of phone calls, too. Your thoughts? Well, Mike, how can you talk about taxes and then just say shrug off the budget, right? What are we doing this for? As we just pointed out, the deficit spending, not even spending, deficit spending is so high that the Trudeau government would burn through that cash in a month. Okay, so this isn't going to be funding spending. It's one month of spending. The other 11 months of the year, it's going to be average Canadians who get hammered by this. So what's the point of doing all this? You're going to damage your economy, and you're not even going to work towards balancing the budget. All right, welcome back. Back to our wealth tax panel. My guest, Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Joe Roberts, a CanadianDimension.com. Let's go to your phone calls here. Chris in Vancouver. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. What do you think? So um, our family is a small family business. We uh, own a lot of properties. We're selling off our properties right now because of what the government's doing. And the thing is, is that if the take this taxes that they're, they're getting out of control with and leads to uh, more taxes and then it leads to other things with inflation, um, you know, my, my family worked hard for what they have and you're taking money from people that are actually worked hard. So, you know, when you talk about all these other businesses that are billions of dollars, it's not going to come from them, and they don't care. It's the ones that worked hard all their life to get to where okay. they've got now. Okay. $10 million in Vancouver is nothing. If you okay, so about, do you, are, your, are your assets more than $10 million then? Once we sell everything off, it will be, but the problem is we'll probably head out of town anyway. We'll probably just get out of here because it's just getting nuts in Canada. It's nuts. Okay, Joe, so what we'll do you probably, Joe Roberts, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think this, uh, the plan here is not to be punitive to people who worked hard, but the reality of obscene wealth in this country is that most people who have it did not work hard for it. They're earning it through inheritance. They're earning it uh, through uh, gift tax, you know, gifting from other family members. That's where it's coming from. I mean, if you, th- you think about the Irving family, there's going to be generations of that family in perpetuity who will have billions of dollars. Franco. Yeah, well, let me just step in there. So here's what's so difficult about a wealth tax is a few things. But first, even if you're just around that threshold, as a business owner, as a farmer, for example, you're going to be required to hire an accountant to figure out what your assets might be worth if they were sold. So it's an absolute nightmare, even if you're not being hammered by this wealth tax. And, and you know what? To the caller's point, you know what happened in France? Guess what the, the, the ultra-wealthy, so to speak, did? They got up and they left. They left the country to avoid paying those higher taxes. 
So this wealth tax, you're not going to be generating that revenue to pay for all this spending. What you're going to be doing is you're going to be hammering hardworking people who own businesses, hardworking people who own, who own farms. For example, farmers have so much, uh, they have their money tied up in their tractors, in their farmland. Well, you're really going to impact those hardworking Canadians with this type okay. of tax. Okay, Jim on the open line in Langley. Hi, Jim. Oh, hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question about all this is, uh, would the wealth tax include the Trudeau's family fortune and other wealthy politicians? They don't seem to feel the wealth tax or the taxes uh, for fuel and other things that they impose on the working people. Uh, you know, they have uh, vehicles provided and, and fuel uh, subsidies and all that kind of stuff. They don't okay, feel well. the taxes they bring in. I don't know, Trudeau's net worth. Uh, Joe Roberts, do you know? <laughs> hey, I, I don't know, but look, he's going to pay it just like everybody else. I mean, look, yeah. 73% of households in the top income bracket support this because it is smart policy. You know, we talk about people leaving. You know, Frank loves to mention that people leave when they're having to be pay tax. That's just not reality. People who are, you know, married, who have a life here, who have a, a, a system, an ecosystem, who, who own a business, aren't mobile. They don't just pick up and leave. There's absolutely no evidence to support that. Franco, what do you say to that? Well, <laughs> well, I will say to, to, the, to the, uh, the guy who phoned in, guess what? Our politicians have not been sharing in this downturn. Our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, every year his taxpayer-funded salary is more than $300,000. The Prime Minister and our ministers are on the top 1% top 1% of income earners. You know what they could do to help share in the burden? They could take a pay cut. During COVID-19, our MPs have pocketed not one, but two pay raises while millions okay. of Canadians struggled through the pandemic. Okay, squeeze another call in here. Terry in New West. Hey, Terry. Yeah, well, you know, the wealthy people, what will happen is if you start taxing them, uh, they will, like the fellow says on your show, they will find a way of circumventing that they'll find tax breaks accountants to help them lawyers um i've got real problems i'm i've got a big american background here and when reagan got in the first thing he did was he brought in tax breaks for the wealthiest because he yeah. thought that trickle-down economy the wealthiest get wealthier that means the middle class will somehow prosper as well or the working class and it didn't work at all uh, there was more poor people in the streets mm -hmm. of the, uh, the united states under reagan and clinton got in and got 70% of the people that were collecting welfare off of welfare working. Uh, but Reagan got in and did this, and it's not the right thing to do, but, you know, okay. the rich will find a way of not paying their fair taxes. Okay, Franco, what do you say to that? Well, you know, I, I kind of want to bridge a gap here, because I, I, I hope there is one thing that we can agree on, and, and that is, you know what, if we want uh, the, the wealthy, the businesses to, to pay their fair share, so to speak, the first thing that politicians should do is just stop handing out corporate welfare. Stop taking the tax dollars from Canadian families and Canadian businesses and giving it to handpicked well, what, what about right? his what about his argument about trickle down though economics I mean is that effectively what you're arguing for I mean if you if you increase taxes on the wealthiest you're saying it won't trickle down anymore right well, I mean the Canadian Taxpayers Federation we, we do advocate for lower taxes not just for businesses but for families as well absolutely we think many Canadians are working hard and they should keep more of their money within their families within their businesses so that they can reinvest I mean here's the truth of the matter. Who pays business taxes? Well, businesses don't pay taxes. It's their workers who get hammered. Uh, they don't get those wage increases, and they lose okay. their job opportunities. Okay, Joe Roberts, I'll give you the last word here. we got, we got 30 seconds here. Look, who's the hardest working people in Canada? It's certainly not billionaires. It's people who are making an hourly wage, 
who are struggling, who are suffering every day to fill their prescriptions, who are trying to send their kids to school and have a better life for them. You know, let's be honest. This isn't going to affect the rich. It will make a difference for working people. We got to do something, and Jack Singh is, is leading okay. the way 